You are listening to the Body Charge podcast, and I'm your host, Sandy Sanderson. Hello, today's Body Charge podcast is about new discoveries that support the autistic brain. The brain is the most fascinating and mysterious organ, and there is still a lot to learn about how it works. A recent enigma is the inexplicable rise in the numbers of autistic children and how best to raise them, educate and support them. This can result in great stress for the family. My special guest today, chiropractor Dr. Kyle Daigle, has a fellowship in childhood development and neurobehavioral disorders. He is the co-owner of NeuroSolution, which specializes in photobiomodulation and neurological rehab equipment. Dr. Daigle is also the co-inventor of NeuroSage, a revolutionary computer video game that harnesses targeted auditory and visual stimulus to boost functional wellness for anyone with neurological disorders or injuries. So welcome aboard. Um, thank you for, for being my guest. Yes, it's very fascinating, this subject. Um, I, I'll just tell you in the beginning, my I have an adult daughter, my firstborn with autism, so she has a developmental delay disorder and suffers immensely from high anxiety and worrying, constantly worrying. And she's light sensitive. She has to draw the curtains all the time. Um, I always wonder how she's able to produce amazing artwork without with much less light than I would need. Uh, so, so it it fascinates fascinates me because my three other children are fine and very neurotypical. Um, so I've, I've gone through my 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 life in my mind, wondering, researching, reading all the books about autism. I read uh, Professor Tony Atwood's book and started to understand my daughter a little bit better and about the communication, the the, the pictorial language that she uses, which can be quite cryptic sometimes. So, so it's a lot of work to come to a different level of the way an autistic brain communicates and understands and interprets the world. And I believe your research is very much at the forefront. And you mentioned the importance of light. Um, so can you explain a little bit more about what the differences are between the autistic brain and a neurotypical brain and the influence of light? Yeah, well, I think the first thing, you know, when I, I work with kids from all over the world, I actually have a very big patient population from Australia that fly to America to see me. And the first thing that we try to do if we're if we're able to um, is actually a QEG. So it's actually an EEG of the brain, but it stands for Q because of the qualitative. And we actually look at the brain waves. So we look at delta waves, which are very low brain waves, typically when we're sleeping. Uh, theta waves, um, which are about four to eight hertz that deal with, um, again, kind of a drowsy, relaxed kind of meditative state. Alpha waves, uh, eight to 13 uh, hertz, uh, beta waves, and then high beta waves. And then what we're seeing in all these kids is they actually have what's called incoherent brain waves, meaning the brain waves, um, they're not symmetrical. And what we're seeing is a lot of hyperactivity, a lot of high beta waves. And high beta is a brainwave that often typically deals with your fight or flight response. So you're sympathetic driven. So kids um, who typically stay in a high beta state, um, they can have a lot of sensitivities and light and sound are typically one of them. Crowded places cause anxiety. 
uh, social anxiety, being around, you know, unfamiliar places or being around unfamiliar things. And so what we're seeing, and again, every autistic child's brain is very different, but the one thing that we're seeing clinically is that they have an excessive high beta wave. And then when we see these kids that are nonverbal, what we're seeing is excessive delta waves. And delta is, again, this lower brain wave typically found where we're sleeping. And we're seeing these lower brain waves actually in the speech centers. So there's an area in the brain called Broca's uh, and Wernicke's. And we're seeing that with these nonverbal kids. Um, but when we look at what's called functional connectivity, so basically how the brain is going to basically integrate between networks, what we see is that in the left hemisphere, which is going to typically be more of our detail-oriented, our routines, um, uh, a lot of more like hyperactivity, we're seeing a lot more connections versus the right side of the brain, which is where you see kids can actually self-regulate, have really good posture, really good gross motor skills. Oh, flexibility. Uh, correct. And um, it's very interesting because when we see these, um, the way that, you know, we treat patients, the way that we kind of, you know, treat from using the light, um, therapy is really trying to actually initially balance the brainwaves because the brain needs to feel safe. And when you're looking at these children or even adults, if they have a lot of high beta waves, then their brain is going to be scared. So I, no I noticed that that there's always this feeling of, am I safe? Is the person I'm talking with my friend or are they going to do something to me? There's always the feeling of uh, fight or flight and they behave their best in, in the right environment of feeling safe and feeling nurtured and feeling like they're not in danger. Uh, and they may be not in danger, but the mind tends to conjures, conjure up imaginary dangers sometimes because they can't interpret the environment. They misunderstand social cues and, you know, the stranger danger or uh, they they there's some kind of disconnect and is it in that language area of the brain where you mentioned that there's there's a kind of a disability there or there's something fixed it's not not adapting or changing very well so what's the chicken and the egg is it the beta waves or is it some physical thing that causes more adrenaline to push out more you know the more the more stress hormones we get the heart the more beta waves the brain produces isn't that right correct and and i think that the you know when you go to the chicken the egg i personally believe that the underlying issue to a lot of these kids actually kind of resides around that um you know there's pathological aspect where we're seeing a lot of these kids actually have you know gi issues so there's just gut brain connection uh, I think it actually goes a little higher than that. And it also goes to something called the sinus brain, sinus gut brain connection, uh, because we're actually seeing that a lot of these kids across the globe are testing positive for mycotoxin exposure, which is mold exposure. And I personally believe, uh, because when you look at these children, they have asymmetrical facial tone. So their facial tone is not symmetrical. And there's an area inside of the sinus cavity, it's called the sphenopalatine ganglia, and when you look at the kind of way that this, this ganglia connects, there's a lot of nerves that actually can go up into the frontal lobe. You have nerves that go into an area called the midbrain, which is where your light and sound sensitivity comes from. And then you see another area go to an area in the brainstem called the pons, which is going to control our facial tone, our sensation of our face, 
the sensation, actually the taste receptors to the front two thirds of the tongue, which is why these kids are picky eaters. And then it also controls their postural tone. So uh, lack of head tilts that so you see a lot of these kids typically have head tilts. And then even when you look at their overall postural tone, uh, it's typically off. And so they tend to have uh, a belly that comes out a bit lower, protrudes more. Uh, yeah, the 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 back isn't doesn't look it looks more slumped, and the gait also changes. That a lot of researchers have noticed they when they use the computer um, recordings, they can see that there's always some kind of imbalance or a different rhythm in the way they walk and take steps. And so is this connected with that part of the brain you just mentioned? Correct. So that's actually connected to something called the cerebellum. And that's another dysfunction. So if you you know, start researching the cerebellum in autism, you're going to see that there's a lot of interconnected networks that aren't as strong and stable. Your eyes, you know, your eyes feed into the cerebellum, uh, your balance and equilibrium feed into that. Um, your, it's called the, your medulla, which is where your vagus nerve feeds into that. And then your postural muscles and all your muscles feed into this area. And, um, there's a lot of basically disconnected networks to the cerebellum. And so what happens is, is in most children, what we see clinically is that when they walk, you see that they don't symmetrically swing their arms. And then you typically, a lot of times you can actually see there's a foot flare when they walk. And what we do is we actually use rhythmic movement for treatment. So we actually use metronomes and we try to get kids to actually either walk to a metronome to uh, alternate their feet uh, to a metronome. And what we try to do is we try to synchronize this muscle rhythm to try to entrain this part of the cerebellum, which is going to communicate to the brain. And what it does is it's actually like a calibrator. It actually starts to calibrate the, um, the muscle tone and also the processing speed of the brain. Because a lot of these kids are actually, they're, they're extremely smart, uh, but some of these kids have self-regulation issues. And, you know, the cerebellum, for example, actually controls muscle tone, cognitive function, uh, emotional control, and then your overall muscle tone. And when you really look at, you know, children who gets diagnosed on the spectrum, a lot of times you actually see there's a lot of dysfunctions. So- And what also feed digestive dysfunctions that you had mentioned um, I've read an article uh, published as a study recently about um, interoception disorder where they get sensations coming to them from the body. So hungry, thirsty, hot, cold, but the brain doesn't decode or interpret it correctly. So they may just feel agitated. So my daughter goes out for a smoke. <laughs> That's her, her solution instead of having a drink of water. Um, and so I think they get into this bad habit of not recognizing when they should be taking on board, on board hydration and nutrition and, you know, going for a walk or, you know, she can drink a really hot cup of tea that burns my lips and she can just down it. And I'm thinking, how do you do that? It's just not right. But she doesn't seem to feel the heat of that tea. It's really amazing. Yeah, well, two things from that. One, actually, I say three. Um, there's something out there called leptin resistance that deals with fat metabolism. And we're finding that a lot of these kids actually have 
or even adults have deficits in leptin metabolism. So leptin would be leptin resistance would kind of be like trying to drive your car with mud on the windshield and mud on the speedometer where you really don't know how fast you're going. You don't really know where you're going and you also don't know how much fuel you have. And so what's happened to a lot of these kids is that, you know, some of these kids can eat a lot, a lot, a lot, and they don't necessarily ever get a sense of like fullness. And that's actually something called leptin resistance, but that ties into the light as you were asked, you know, originally asking me about is that what happens with light is that light actually penetrates something in the back of the eye. We have something called our circadian rhythm, and it's actually from how the sun rises and then the sun sets. And a lot of times, you know, way back in our primitive days, you know, we didn't have artificial lighting. Um, you know, typically we had to wake up, you know, typically when the sun rises and we spent time outside. Um, and then as the sun goes down, there really wasn't that much light exposure after sundown. And what I have found clinically from doing all these testing is that when I actually do an, a brain image, so I do a QEEG on a child and I have him in a room and I have, you know, just like I have here, I have these artificial lights on. What it actually does is we can actually see there's an excessive amount of this high beta wave. There's a stress response. And what we started doing is actually testing kids literally with these artificial lights on, just like regular lights in, our, in the home. And then we actually show parents the impact of red light therapy. And what we'll do is we'll actually cut the light off and we'll put something called like a red LED light panel on. And then we'll do the same exact scan. And what's very interesting is that these excessive high beta waves in the brain actually get reduced. I've seen reduction literally between 50, sometimes to 65% mm. from actually reducing the artificial light and actually adding red light. Now, the artificial now, light is overstimulating a very sensitive brain. Correct. And that's that's what's happening. So if you have this high beta wave and this high beta wave, the brain is in this paranoia, kind of hypervigilant state. Why they can't sleep and they're on the computer too long or, you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> exactly um, right. Exactly right. And so what's happening is if you take, so there's something called an ophthalmo uh, ophthalmoscope where you can actually like literally, like if you go to like an ophthalmologist, they might look in the back of the eye, look at the optic disc. Um, but what we're seeing is, is there's a lot of black in the back of the eye. And it's because of, you know, excessive screen times, light exposure. A lot of these kids and even adults don't like to go outside and they actually have very sensitive eyes. And so what's happened is, is when you run vitamin panels, they actually have vitamin A deficiencies, um, which again, you know, people, people take typically vitamin A to actually help out with night blindness. Um, so there's a lot of nutritional deficiencies. There's a lot of fatty acid imbalances. Um, but light exposure is, is very unique because, you know, a lot of these kids that, you know, want to go to sleep at night, if we actually start to reduce screen time, we reduce artificial light, we actually reduce artificial light after sundown and we get these kids or even adults to get out and watch sunrises, sunset and try to get outside. We're actually seeing that their sleep cycle starts getting to restore. And something that's very interesting about, um, about the circadian rhythm, which is triggered by the sunrise and sunset is that. Research is showing that the circadian rhythm can actually improve and assist in carbohydrate metabolism. So one of the typical diets, especially in young children, is that they like to eat the same repetitive thing over and over again, pasta, pizza, crackers, chicken nuggets. Yeah, a lot of that. And French fries and chips. And what's happening is, is those are all carbs. 
So if their light cycle, which meaning they're not being exposed to the sun and natural light, um, and their carbohydrate metabolism is going to be diminished, well, what's going to happen is, is that sets up a breeding ground because if your brain's in this stressful state, high beta, you cannot rest and digest. So you can't break down all these carbohydrate foods. And guess what happens? It's that feeds gut bacteria. So you get this concept called dysbiosis, abnormal gut bacteria or SIBO. And it's basically abnormal gut bacteria in the small intestine. Affected and by then, the acids as well. The acidic environment right. breeds more pathogens. Correct. And you, one of the things that I, I'm a very big fan of is something called propionic acid. And propionic acid is actually a neurotoxin that's produced by clostridium, by yeast. And yeast are coming fed from carbohydrates and Which sugars. Which also hyperstimulates the brain, doesn't it? Clostridium is always associated with anger or emotional outbursts, meltdowns. Totally. You're right. You're spot on. And so now you're seeing, so that's kind of the chicken and the egg is, is it potentially you know, pathogens that could potentially contribute to some well, of this hyper maybe opportunistic. Correct. Or, and one of the, one of my theories, um, and again, I wrote a book, it's called cracking, it's called, um, cracking the code of autism. And, uh, it was 17 chapters. And I kind of wrote a lot of, you know, this context in this book, but one of the biggest things that what we're seeing is, is that these children actually, as an early infant, when you take your child to a pediatrician, and you're asking, you know, you recognize as a parent, you recognize potentially maybe that your child's um, maybe a little delay. The pediatricians, there's really, they're, they're not assessing something called primitive reflexes. And these are infant reflexes that actually assist in the maturation of the infant brain. They're mainly looking for your big gross motor style uh, uh, milestones. Uh, are you rolling over? Are you holding your head up? Are you babbling? Are you walking? Are you crawling? But they're not actually checking these reflexes like the palmer reflex in the hand, the Babinski in the foot, the rooting reflex in the face, the ATNR for crawling, the spinal gallant for hyperactivity, the moral reflex for light and sound sensitivities. And so as a parent, if you don't know if your child is missing these milestones, then you potentially don't know your child can have a delay. And these reflexes actually start integrating at two months of age. You have wow. two, it's four, six, eight, all the way up to one to year. catch it early. So my exactly. daughter was my firstborn and I had no previous experience and I didn't think that she wasn't the same as everyone else as a child, except looking back, she was very quiet, kept to herself, didn't really socialize much um, and, and developed her artwork skills at, at a genius level from a very early age because that's how she entertained herself with her imagination. And I just thought she's going to be like, you know, some kind of smart genius when she grew up because she could do amazing things. But um, her social skills were uh, less and she was prone to bullying at school and very sensitive emotionally. And then it was all manageable until puberty hit. And then, then I had a monster teenager on my hands. So, so it went from bad to worse as she got older and confronted the real world. And the real world did not conform to what she had had in her imagination, in her own fantasy world of how the world should be. And this caused great traumas. The traumas then cause a cascade of other stress responses. And then the, the health becomes worse and worse. So it's really important for parents 
I think, you know, in retrospect, in hindsight, for me, if I'd have had the opportunity to know and understand, to get help, uh, my daughter would have been helped earlier and potentially could have avoided a lot of dysfunction in her adult life simply by learning different skills and strategies to avoid that overstimulation, to avoid the things that harmed her because, you know, these people are less resilient. So they need to develop other ways of dealing and coping with things, of handling nutrition, of paying attention to lifestyle, and, you know, no, making those habits ingrained. Um, but she instead got caught up with all the wrong crowd and wanted to be like everyone else, drinking and smoking and going to parties. And, you know, it harmed her, it hurt her. Um, so I, I urge parents, we have a lot of parents, by the way, with young children, um, using our electromagnesium cream for a little massage before bed because the magnesium absorbed transdermally helps a lot to calm the system, the central nervous system, and to prepare them for a better sleep. And of course, sleep is, I think, one of the most important things to help that central nervous system to recover. And I've seen my daughter when she doesn't get sleep, if she's been worried or um, aggravated by something, she doesn't sleep and all night by the morning, her eyes are wide and she's pacing back and forth and she's in a really, really highly stressed, anxious state from not sleeping. Um, and it does look like to the doctors who don't know her background, it looks like a psychosis, but it's not a psychosis. It's just, she hasn't had enough sleep. So I think that a lot of um, adults are being misdiagnosed at the moment. Have you encountered that? Yeah, you know, and it goes back. What I've actually have seen is that even an adult, when I work with an adult patient who, you know, 40 years old, I have a, my oldest right now that I have is 42. So I have a 42 year old adult male with, you know, diagnosed with autism. And he actually has at 42 years old, he still has his retained primitive infant reflexes. And it's very interesting that there's something called the Moro reflex. And the moral reflex is actually triggered by light and sound. And that's what actually makes people kind of jump, kind of start like a baby. You, you, you drop something and the baby kind of jumps. Well, that same reflex is also can be retained in a patient who has autism at a very older age who has anxiety or light and sound sensitivities. And so what we clinically do is we actually use these, um, they're called eye lights. There are these actually glasses that flash light. And what we typically do is we actually look at the patient's pupil size. And what we find clinically, not every patient, but about 80% of our autistic patients, they typically have a really big right pupil. So we actually do diagnostics of the eyes. Wow, and what I'm we do, is we, actually, <laughs> we actually try to shrink the pupil. So if we have a big right pupil, what we'll do is we'll actually put on these blue glasses. And then what we do is these lights flash in the outside of the left eye, inside the right eye. And what that does is it actually targets this midbrain on the right side, which is actually going to control that big right pupil. Or if we see this big left pupil, then we'll typically use like red glasses. And then we have a light flash in the outside, the right eye, inside the left. And we'll try to rehab and start shrinking that left pupil. And that's one of my big things. That when I look at a patient, I mainly look at your, your pupil size. I look at your facial tone, I look at the head tilt, and I look at the actual uvula in the mouth, the vagus nerve. And what we do is we do these cranial nerve stimulations. So whether it's facial stimulation, pupillary constriction, uh, vagus nerve, we do a lot of auricular branch of the vagus nerve in the ear or actually over the actual stomach. 
uh, and we do a lot of tongue stimulation. And what we basically do is we use all this sensory stimulation with these patients and our goal is to actually rehab and strengthen the cranial nerves. So it works like this. If you have hyperactivity in the brain, then our goal is to use the senses to try to start calming the hyperactivity down. So let's just say hypothetically that someone has this really, really big right pupil and the left pupil is real small. Well, what's going to happen is, is they're going to get either overactivation to one side of the brain and they're going to get coming in and it's the opposite side of the brain, isn't it? So the right eye controls the left side. Is that right? When you go, there's, there's, the eyes are very interesting because there's different parts. So we're talking about pupil constriction. What's going to happen is, is the right pupil is actually going to go straight to the right midbrain, which is going to go straight to the right basal ganglia on the right side. So, but naturally when you start coming down, like the left arm, the left side, the body is actually going to cross. And, you know, our rehab is this concept called functional neurology. It's basically, we rehab the actual pathways, so you have different pathways. Them. You mean retrain them to learn a different pattern of Correct. autopilot. Correct. We just try to balance them out because what you're seeing is, is there's a lot of these pathways that are really strong. And then on the other side, there could be underactive. So I basically really focus in on all your 12 cranial nerves. Can you smell symmetrical? Can you hear symmetrical? I put a pulse ox on someone to read their heart rate. What happens when I put sound in your right ear? Did it increase your heart rate? Did it reduce it? What about the left ear? And what we do is we actually find ways, the senses to calm down the heart rate. Because if I can calm down someone's heart rate, then I can calm down the brain waves. And that's how we start to desensitize these hypersensitive patients is by literally using sensory stimulation, but we're monitoring their heart rate the entire time. And then the goal is to just basically calm their heart rate down from 110 beats per minute you know, to try to get to 60, 70 beats. And then we're able to track which cranial nerve is actually going to basically stimulate and calm the brain down. So when when the, the body physically is feeling, when the sensations coming from the body is feeling calm and balanced, the thoughts then follow, don't they? They don't tend to worry so much. It's almost like the brain tries to think up reasons why the body is feeling bad. And the... So traditionally, one it was thought that the you, you know you need cognitive therapy. You've got to change your 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 thoughts, and then your body will follow. And and that works sometimes, but it doesn't tend to work a lot with people on the spectrum. First, you need to calm that physical body and the sensations of it, and then you can start to work cognitive cognitively. Is Correct. that your experience? Correct. Yeah, because you have to train the brain. And what's happening is, is if the senses are abnormal, for example, like you mentioned your daughter about drinking hot tea and burning her tongue. Well, what's happening is, is if you actually were somewhere where to actually check her sensation to her face, it might be asymmetrical. She might not be able to feel vibration on her cheek. Or if you draw like a letter on her face, she might not be able to tell you what letter it is. So what you have to do is you have to rehab because she needs to be able to feel her face. And very interesting is that the facial nerve also controls the sensation to the first, the front two thirds of the tongue. And then when you look at these kids, they don't have symmetrical facial lines called nasolabial folds. So what you have to do is you have to literally take this brain, you see all this hyperactivity. And what you need to do is you need to slowly, gradually, one at a time, you start layering or stacking sensory stimulation. I mean, sometimes I've literally just had to use acoustic stimulation where I get this kid with very high beta waves 
And then I had to literally, they, they didn't feel safe. So I had to put them into a big, large room and literally use brainwave entrainment. I had to just use like theta brainwaves and literally oh God, all they're so in panicked. a room. Exactly right. And so what I do is I use acoustic stimulation to actually take the brain from this stressful situation. And then what happens is, is they start breathing. You start noticing that like, wow, they just took a breath and you didn't even notice that they actually were even breathing. And what happens is, is we start to literally calm the brain waves down. So this patient could actually start to self-regulate and they start feeling safe because if you throw too much on someone at one time, that can make that person freak out and, you know, start having a panic attack. So our goal is to just slowly, gradually start adding in the sensory stimulation at the whole time we're monitoring their heart rate and boom. It's got to be start- a gentle, gentle process. And do, do they need like quite a number of sessions uh, to gradually just uh, retrain over time? What would be a typical time period to retrain those muscles that you were talking about, for instance, in the face? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, every patient varies, you know, um, you know, my initial response to that is normally when I take cases on, I run like a lot of labs ahead of time. Like I want to know what someone's stool looks like. I want to know how much inflammation they have. The whole body. Uh, yeah. Because that's going to determine if, if their brain and their gut is so inflamed, then, then really they're going to be definitely hypervigilant to the, you know, the environment. So my goal initially is to potentially lower the inflammatory rate, whether it's nutraceuticals, whether it's medication, whether it's dietary changes. I want to try to suppress that inflammation so that way the brain's in a better state. Because if your brain's really inflamed, you know, and you're applying all this sensory stimulation, you're not going to see very good neurological connections. So um, that's one of the first things. But um, I'd, I'd say that depending on the severity of the case, I mean, you're looking at in order to really get someone like really fully self-regulated, like, like, you know, I'm talking about like an extreme case where a child potentially, um, you know, has to wear soundproof headphones, they put in your fingers in their ear, um, you know, that right there, that kid you're looking at, um, I would say between four and six months of his gradual sensory stimulation to be able to get this kid to consistently start to self-regulate. Um, but children tend to um, recover faster. I think it it takes it it would take a lot longer for adults that have got more ingrained habits that have grown over a longer period of time. Correct. Yeah, that's basically I, I tell people that's a lot of neuro negative neuroplasticity. So there's a lot of negative negative plastic changes in the brain that have to basically be repruned and re you know basically regrown or resynapted. Um, so this but technology yeah. that you've got, is that something people can use at home as like a daily um, therapy that they can administer to themselves with the, yes, with the light? Correct. So we have uh, we have red light panels. Uh, so I'm sure you probably have seen big red light panels. We have red light panels. Um, we actually have a handheld um, red light that we typically use. It has red and infrared. Um, and then, you know, just to kind of give you an example, but our main placements that we recommend people use is actually lasering the carotid arteries. Okay. So the carotid artery is actually controlled by the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is going to help improve blood flow to the brain. You have the left vagus nerve typically is going to help out with like constipation issues, the immune system, the right vagus nerve is going to typically help out more of like an anti-inflammatory. It helps your kidneys and liver with detoxification. So we like to laser just typically like three or five minutes on the carotid arteries. That would help the thyroid as well, wouldn't it? Yes, ma'am. 
And we also like to laser in the back behind the ear. So this is where we have something called the vertebral artery, which brings blood flow to the cerebellum and the brainstem, which is where all of your cranial nerves come from. So we laser on both sides. to get headaches a lot, isn't it, too, at the back of the head? Yes, ma'am. Correct. And then we do a lot of lasering over the stomach, over the GI tract. Um, and then we typically laser the hands, the feet. We do laser the face for the sinuses and then the whole spine from the waist to the neck. And those are our main kind of areas that we, you know, recommend parents use. And that, again, it could go from duration wise, you know, three to five minutes plus each, each uh, location. Um, and then there's a lot of research over, um, photobiomodulation on the actual head itself. Uh, so typically areas that are typically, you know, found that could be weak in an autistic child are the frontal lobes. Um, you have the temporal lobes and yeah. then you have the parietal lobes, which is where your sensory, um, you know, your spatial it's map like of your body primitive is. part of the brain. Yes, ma'am. So the primitive part of the brain is actually going to typically be initially in the actual brain stem. So you have something called the midbrain, which is going to control your pupils, your eye movements, right, you right. the pons, facial tone, postural control, and the medulla, which is where your vagus nerve is. And then the cerebellum, which is balance, coordination, emotional control. So if, um, we're coming to a, a close. If you would like to summarize and also let people know where they can find out more about what you do, because it is so fascinating, um, where would they go? Okay, so um, on Amazon, um, I have a book. Uh, it's called Cracking the Code of Autism, uh, written by Dr. Kyle Daigle. Um, we have three locations here currently in the United States. They're called Neurosolution Centers. We have one in Austin, Texas. Uh, I'm in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and we have one in Atlanta, Georgia, opening up in Dubai in, I believe it's going to be April or May. Um we have very active Facebook pages, uh, so mine people can find me by Dr. Kyle Daigle uh, on Instagram. I have a lot of videos on YouTube over primitive reflexes, um, and then we do monthly coaching for doctors and clinicians. Every mm -hmm. month at the end of the month, we train uh, doctors all over the world, teaching them about you know these methods, and then we have conferences. We actually do a conference in Australia once a year. Um, last one was in Sydney. We're going to be in Melbourne, I believe in 2024. And, um, so, so if people want to, um, hook up with that system to learn more, um, do you recommend they go to a website or how would, yeah, so, they, tell you? How yeah. would they send you an, a, a, a question? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so my, uh, if someone were to send my assistant, her name is Jordan. Uh, so there's two ways. We have a WhatsApp number. It's uh, plus one, three, three, seven, four, nine, nine, three, one, six, two. She's very active uh, on WhatsApp. People send us text messages, call people can set up consultations. Um, we also have an email that people can reach out to her. It's tech T E C H at youperformance.com. Um, and there's direct access people can set up. Initially, what we do is we have generalized intake forms that parents uh, can fill out. And um, they're very unique intake forms over the brain, over metabolic, like the whole gut and organ functions. And then once we basically get that, we put together a, a plan and then we jump on a Zoom call. And these are things that I can help people out, whether we do virtual uh, people. I do have a lot of doctors in Australia that I refer people to or patients to. And then some patients do fly into one of our facilities here in the States. And we do something called an intensive, which is typically 16 to 20 hours a week of pretty intensive therapy, red light stimulation, 
uh, primitive reflex integration. Uh, we do saunas um, and we do a lot of core stimulation and sensory integration. Um, I can put all that information of the contact places underneath the YouTube video. Um, okay. So um, thank you very much for this very enlightening interview. I really appreciate it. And um, hopefully we can do some more in-depth ones in the future again. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you like this conversation and will share it with others. Hear more from Body Charge on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our newsletter to get updates on blogs, podcasts, videos and magnesium special offers at electromagnesium.com.au. Relax, recharge and recover.